You can now hear Movie Heaven Movie Hell on Stitcher. Stitcher is ready on demand. Listen anytime, anywhere. Stitcher is an award-winning free app that lets you listen to all your favourite shows, plus discover from 20,000 news, entertainment and sports shows. You can also create your own custom playlists. Stitcher is available on iOS, Android, Nook, iPad and in over 4 million car dashboards. It's on demand and it's on the go. No downloading, no syncing, no wasted memory. You can stream your favourite podcasts from Stitcher. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the App Store. And please, leave us a review and rating on Stitcher. Thank you. Welcome to Movie Heaven, Movie Hell with me, Simon Aiken, and... And I'm Keith Isles, and we are both independent filmmakers who enjoy discussing movies, TV series, and related media. And for this special episode, we are delighted to welcome back award-winning writer, podcaster, and now film producer, Anthony Johnston. So welcome back to the show, Anthony. Hello, it's very good to be here. You know, very pleased to have you back again. Um, obviously, some sort of major changes have happened, I guess, in your world since you were last on, um, in so much as, you know, you now have a, a movie at, at the cinema based on a property that you wrote. Um, and I, I, am I correct in saying it's been approximately a sort of 10-year journey from concept to cinema? for this uh if, if you mean concept as in the book itself yes uh i first conceived of the book in 2008 um and so you know round about summer 2008 as well so and now here we are summer of 2017 and and the movie's out so yeah if we go right the way back to the start uh it's roughly what is it nine years which wow. is but saying that i'm told that uh because i was you know, to me, from my point of view, because this is the first of my, this is the first thing I've had option that's actually gone through the whole process. I've had stuff option before, but this is the first thing that's gone through the whole process and actually made it through and come out the other side, as it were, as a movie. And uh, I, to, from my perspective, that's felt like it took an awful long time. I am now told, I have now learned <laughs> uh, from talking to people in the movie industry that actually that's pretty fast. Even nine years from concept to optioning to making the movie to release is considered to be, you know, that's not bad. That's considered not not mega fast, but certainly not slow. And going from considering that it's only five years from the publication of the book to the movie release that is considered to be very fast which again to to my mind has been like agonizingly slow but uh, people in the industry have sort of laughed at me and go no no no, no that's really fast <laughs> <laughs> well of course the, the movie that we are talking about here because I, I realize i didn't mention it in the lead up is is indeed atomic blonde uh starring charlie's theron amongst a cast of many other you know a-list type actors um which was adapted from the graphic novel the coldest city that's correct right that is all correct yes Okay, so um, I'm sure you've been asked. I, I know you've had previous interviews about this, um, but you know, for the for the benefit of our listeners, could you tell us a little bit about um, you know where this all started? Sure. Um, well, it started like I said earlier in uh, 2008 when I, I think at that point I'd been a professional writer for about ten years. Uh, and I'd written a variety of stuff. I mean, one of the sort of hallmarks of my career is that I genre hop. Uh, you know, I've done horror, romantic comedy, kids stuff, uh, sci-fi, fantasy, you name it. Uh, I've even done a Western. Um, but one thing I hadn't done uh, at that point was an out-and-out -out spy story. And I'm a big fan of spy fiction, especially mm -hmm. Cold, Cold War spy fiction. I grew up watching James Bond movies and stuff. And, uh, you know, the sort of 60s... TV Euro spy uh, shows. I 
my mother loved those. So I grew up watching those as well. I read John Le Carre and Ian Fleming, obviously, and also things like Len Dayton. Uh, I loved the Sandbaggers TV show, you know, big fan of the genre. And yet I'd never written any. And then in 2006, I believe it was, I was asked by um, a friend of mine and fellow comics writer, Greg Rucker, who had a series called Queen in Country at a publisher, Only Press, who I had already done a lot of work with. And at that point, I was just starting my post-apocalyptic epic series, Wasteland, with them, just launching that in 2006. And Greg asked me to, I think it was just before Wasteland, to write an arc of uh, a spin-off series that he did of Queen and Country called Queen and Country Declassified, which dealt with agents' lives before they joined MI6. Uh, so I did. I was very flattered to be asked because I love the series. I wrote that. And in the process of writing it, realized that I was having a really good time. And it occurred to me that that was probably because it was the genre that I love, but had never, for some reason, had never thought about writing in before. So I decided that the next uh, major creator-owned thing that I did, original thing that I created for myself, would be a spy thriller. Uh, mm-hmm. And from there, all the other decisions sort of cascaded out of there. Uh, like I say, I love Cold War spy fiction. So I was like, OK, well, I'm going to do a spy thriller and I'll make it a period piece and set it in the Cold War. Once I decided that, then the decision to set it in Berlin was easy because it's like, where else is, you know, where better in the Cold War to set a spy story than divided Berlin. Um, and from that, the decision to then because of my own experiences to set it at the fall of the wall, because it was this pivotal moment in European history. So all these decisions kind of fell out of that. But the culmination, long story short, too late, is that in 2008, in the summer of 2008, I wrote the script for this graphic novel that became The Coldest City. Um, and then in then we found an artist, which was uh, Sam Hart, old friend of mine, British artist, but he lives in Brazil, uh, who I knew would do it justice. Sam then set about writing it. Um, and not long after the, uh, only press who had agreed to publish this book as well, um, had a partnership with, uh, some producers in Hollywood, the head of media arm basically. And they sat down with Charlie's Theron's production company, just a general meeting and realized it came out of this conversation that Charlie's was looking for basically something like this. Um, you know, just happened to be looking for something that we now had. Um, and so we started talks and, uh, they liked it. You know, we sort of sent them, they actually saw the, I think my original pitch for the book, uh, and then the script for the book, you know, while it was still being drawn. Uh, and then in 20, in 2010, they basically said, we want to buy this. Uh, and then it took another 18 months or so of, negotiations and what have you and in 2012 three months before the book was published uh we signed an option deal with them and denver and delilah that is charlie's production company um basically optioned the book and then from that point on it was a case of okay well now let's get you know the uh financing and casting and find a director and get a screenplay and all that sort of stuff but yeah it all started with me effectively taking two months off of regular work in the summer of 2008 to write this book that at the time I really had no idea whether anybody else would want to read. I didn't have a, I didn't have a publisher already lined up when I started to write it. Um, I didn't consider it particularly commercial or very, uh, a very saleable idea because I wanted to do it in a very specific, particular noirish John le Carre style. Um, you know, where it is, it's not, it's not lighthearted like bond. It hasn't got loads of action in it, unlike the movie version. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it is a very sober and tradecraft focused book full of twists and turns that you have to really pay attention to to follow. Um, and and I succeeded in that and I'm very proud of that. But as a result, I thought, well, this isn't going to be very commercial. So I'm just going to write it for my own enjoyment. And then if I can find a publisher, if I can find somebody to publish it and we can sell a few copies, that'll be great. Wow. I mean, it really is a story dreams are made of, you know, when you only speak to people in our industry, um, you, you know. So you, you, it was your publisher then that managed to get get it in front of Charlie's Theron's production company, was it? Yes. Well, uh, part of the deal, part of their publishing deal is that uh, they represent, uh, for, a, for a period of time anyway, after publication, they represent 
the media rights for books that they publish. Um, it's it's very common, especially amongst uh, smaller publishers in comics, because frankly, there ain't a lot of money in comics. And so it's a way for publishers to mitigate risk because, you know, they're paying us to produce the books. Uh, and so in return, they want to share in any success it has in other media, which I think is reasonable. You know, I don't think that's an unreasonable thing at all. Uh, and that was the case with Coldest City. It was part of that sort of fairly standard publishing deal. Um, and so, yeah, they had, it, it was part of their slate, as it were, that they took out to uh, talk to production companies about. And yeah, as I say, we just happened to, we got really lucky with the timing throughout the whole thing. You know, Charlie's happened to be looking for something like this at the time that we had it. Um, and then uh, we got the right screenwriter, Kurt Jonsted, read the book. He loved the book. Uh, and, you know, just happened to be looking for something to be doing after, I think it was after he'd done the second 300 movie. Uh, and so he was available and he was really into the material. Um, and then when we came to financing and casting, of course, Mad Max Fury Road turned out mm -hmm. to be way more of a hit than anybody could have anticipated. You know, so much more popular than I think anybody would have predicted before it actually opened. And so suddenly everybody wanted to be in Charlize's next action movie. Um, so like I say, the timing in so many aspects just couldn't have been better. So um, Anthony, you had the, you've got a producer credit on this. How much uh, input did you have into the film or is it just a honorary uh, credit? Well, it's, it's somewhere between the two. I mean, I wasn't on set every day. Uh, you know, I can't claim that I was sort of, uh, you know, heavily involved, but they were very gracious about um, keeping me informed and uh, letting me, keeping me involved and letting me see everything and then taking my notes. So uh, I saw, you know, the screenplay drafts and gave notes on them. I visited the set uh, and sort of gave interviews for the, DVD extras, I assume they'll be on a, you know, a DVD or Blu-ray or whatever they do these days. Um, I then saw the rough cut of the first rough cut of the movie and gave notes on that. Um, and I've been, you know, involved in a lot of the press and publicity stuff and been at the, you know, red carpet events and what have you during the film's release. So like I say, I won't claim that I was there day to day, literally sat in video village the whole time. Um, but I was, you know, I was involved and I was giving feedback and notes, partly because <laughs> I was the only Brit behind the camera. We have lots <laughs> of British people in front of the camera, lots of British actors. Uh, but I was the only Brit on the other side of the camera. And so part of what I did was keeping an eye out for uh, things, you know, dialogue particularly that didn't <laughs> quite sound British. Hmm. Um and, and I don't mean to disparage anybody by this because I do the same thing when I'm writing Americans, which I do a lot. And I've been doing it for years. And I know that I still occasionally have American characters saying things. And, you know, my friends are like, you know that we don't actually say that. Um, and it was just the same here. There were a few yeah. things where I'm like, yeah, British people don't actually use that phrase or don't say <laughs> this thing in this particular way. So... Uh, so that was quite helpful, actually. <laughs> that was quite handy that I was there to to help them with that. No, that's cool. And uh, how how are you enjoying uh, you know the whole sort of red carpet experience? Oh well, that's that's very surreal. Um, but it's much like actually shooting. You know, as a sort of my when I visited the set, it was my first experience on a working set. I'd visited sets before, but never actually literally during production while runners are all you know, running around the place and delivering sides and what have you. And people are shouting, rolling, cut and all that. Um, so that was very exciting for about half an hour. Mm. And then after, <laughs> and, and obviously I met, you know, all the principals and stuff there. And that was, that was lovely throughout. But in terms of actually being on the set for anybody who's never done it, and I'm sure you guys will know this, you know, mm. after, after the initial sort of shine wears off, you realize it's a really dull place to be. If you don't yeah. have a job on that set, and all you can do is sit in video village and stick your headphones on when it's, when the runner shouts rolling. Um, and you know, and then you, you, they shoot for 30 seconds and then they stop for 10 minutes to reset and you're just like, my God, this is so dull. <laughs> yeah. Hurry um, up and wait. 
<laughs> right, <laughs> totally. That's what the Rolling Stones always said about uh, touring. You know, it was like 99% was just sitting around doing nothing and waiting for that 1% of time you're actually on stage. Um, and the red carpet stuff has been a bit like that. The first, you know, 30 minutes of it, uh, the first proper one I did was Berlin. Uh, was amazing and very exciting. And, you know, I was completely, the adrenaline's flowing. There's video of me being interviewed on the German live stream somewhere on YouTube. And if you watch it, I think you can tell that I'm sort of trying to hold back the adrenaline rush, you know, mm. uh, and trying to sort of talk in a, in a sensible fashion <laughs> and not, not sound like a flailing idiot, uh, which I think I mostly did, you know. Mm. Uh, but again, after that initial 30 minutes, it's just kind of like, oh, okay, so this is, you know, once you start seeing everything behind the scenes and you see the things that you don't see when you're watching it at home on the TV, you know, the things that are out of shot of the cameras and you start to see how the sausage is made, as it were, again, it just, it becomes a bit, I won't say dull. I mean, I don't think anybody could say red carpet's dull, but it is, I mean, it's repetitive, very mm. repetitive. And uh, yeah, and just kind of, it, you very easily very quickly become acclimatized to this sort of thing. So by the time I was doing my like fifth interview down the line at the LA premiere, uh, you know, sort of towards the end of the queue, as it were, I was completely, I'm so jaded now. <laughs> <laughs> well, Berlin couldn't have been, you know, more appropriate, could it, for your uh, for your first red carpet experience for this Oh, film, it was fantastic, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it was great. And the, the Berlin premiere actually in some ways was a bigger deal than the LA premiere in terms of the crowd and the media sort of buzz around it. Um, obviously not so much in the American press, but just in terms of literally how many people were there uh, and the press scrum. It was really quite extraordinary. The uh, Yeah, the Berliners really, you know, welcomed us. Hmm. I, I recently worked... Um, with uh, a friend of ours called Claire Breno, who does Premier Scene, and uh, uh, I was at a red carpet event for Detroit, and I was actually, uh, you know, we were filming interviews, and so that was the first time that I had actually sort of participated in a red carpet event, you know, had been there for the whole thing, and it was it was kind of interesting to watch uh, this whole sort of push and pull that goes on between having to do the press having to get the photographs and also signing autographs with the fans. And it was this really, it is, it's like a scrum, isn't it? It really is. And I, I should say, uh, I will give, I mean, everybody, you know, sort of was wonderful. And yeah, most of these people, unlike me, have done it many, many times before. But I have to say that Charlize, what a pro on the red carpet, mm -hmm. where, she, you know, she does the whole, uh, what she, in Berlin anyway, where she did the crowd first, signing in selfies and all that sort of thing, you know, uh, which I suppose dates back to when Tom Cruise used to grab people's cell phones and call their mother and, and what yeah. have you. Um, he sort of like really perfected that, didn't he? And yeah, she did the whole crowd signing photograph selfies. Then she did, um, and people were snapping a photo during that time, but then she did the actual, okay, now pose for the press um, photos. And then she did on camera interviews while other people were then getting out of cars and, you know, sort of, uh, going about their business. So it was, th there was a push and pull, but with her anyway, not so much with the rest of us, but with Charlize, because obviously mm. she's such a huge star. It was quite regimented in that sense. And you get the sense that she is very much, you know, a pro and a kind of a veteran at this sort of thing. Yeah, well, of course, and th this is very much a, a passion project uh, for Charlize anyway, right? You, I mean, you can yes. sort of tell, I think, when, when you see the film that uh, how invested she was in it. Um, oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, <laughs> literally in terms of, you know, sort of in the fact that it was her production company was behind the whole thing. But also, yeah, I mean, she clearly believed in it. She part of the reason that she wanted to do it was because she related to the character of Lorraine in the book and really wanted to bring her alive. And she's also been, a, again, you know, a real pro in terms of she really put herself out there in terms of promoting the movie. She Charlize has done just about everything humanly possible over the course of the last three months to promote Atomic Blonde. I don't think there's any anything she could have done that she hasn't in terms of media and press coverage she's really worked tirelessly to to promote it and um, yeah part of that is because as i say obviously she has a literal investment in it but also because yes it was a passion project for her you know it's something that she had wanted to do for a long time and that she 
wanted to be a success to not necessarily prove something. I think that's the wrong phrase to use, but to, you know, just sort of advance this kind of movie and, you know, help lead the way. No, absolutely. And, uh, and hey, when she talks, we listen, you know, so it's <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's all good. So, so let's let's dig into some of the if you like, then some of the, the differences um, between the, the, the film and, and, sure. and your material. Um, and I guess the, 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 the best place to start is actually with the title. So what, what, are, what are your thoughts on, on the actual title Atomic Blonde? I uh, I don't I don't mind it because it does a better job for what they wanted the title to do. Uh and I'm I'm not just saying that to be diplomatic like they had very specific aims with the title. Uh and remember that it was called the movie was called The Coldest City right up until I'm trying to think it was like maybe sort of February or March of this year, you know, really mm-hmm. quite close to release. Um, but then when marketing looked at it, uh, they were, their main concern was that they wanted the movie to tell people, they wanted the title to tell people that the movie was about Charlize was about her mm-hmm. character and the coldest city obviously does not do that. Um, and there were all sorts of suggestions banded around and alternatives uh, many of which I would have been a lot less happy about than with Atomic Blonde, let me tell you. Uh, and we settled on, it came down to, you know, sort of uh, a battle between those two. And it was simply that Atomic Blonde was better received by the focus groups and the test audiences. Um, you know, they did all this research and Atomic Blonde came out on top. And so you can't argue with the numbers. You- no, you've got to listen to that stuff, haven't you? For sure. Yeah. No, absolutely. Right, you have to trust and the other, people know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. And, and the other thing that sort of instantly struck me with the film is, um, I mean, I, I love the fact that it kind of deals with, we, we have lots of cinema that deals with sort of a dystopian future and stuff. But what I kind of liked about this is it, it sort of deals, it, it's sort of set in a dystopian past almost. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, but, but obviously... Sam Hart's uh, artwork in, in the graphic novel is, is, you know, renowned and famous for being black and white, okay? But obviously this film is, is extremely colourful um, and, you, you know, did almost have... It has got a graphic novel feel to it, but, but more of a sort of colour graphic novel, if that makes sense. Um, you, you, you know, what, what's your... I'm sure Sam has thoughts on that, but I mean, what 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 was your thoughts? Bearing in mind that a lot of movies, including Mad Max Fury Road, by the way, um, are being sort of re-released in in black and white or noir versions now. Um, yeah, the black and chrome edition, isn't it? Exactly. Um, I don't think that will happen with this, partly because I I don't want to speak for Sam. But obviously, having you know been through the whole process with him, I know that he is like me, very very happy with the movie. And the thing is, you can't. I mean, you could, you could make a black and white movie nowadays, but you are immediately restricting your audience because this was made to be a mainstream movie. You know, this was not made to be, uh, you know, a sort of little art house cult classic thing that discerning only discerning viewers will go and watch. You know, it was made to be a mainstream action movie and if you make that in black and white you know you will financially fail it's that simple Mm -hmm. you can it's one thing to go back and release a black and white version of an already successful color movie but to actually open in black and white is you know pretty much commercial suicide so that was never on the cards and I, i don't think any of us expected that it would be but what was great was when dave came on board well at the time it was chad and dave chad stelsky and dave leach uh, you know, the guys behind 8711 and co-directed John Wick. And they were going to co-direct The Coldest City as well. But then John Wick 2 scheduling clashed and uh, they decided to take one project each. Chad stayed with John Wick and Dave took on Coldest City. Uh, and when he, and I don't know whether this was the two of them together or whether it was just Dave, because I've only heard Dave talk about it. But basically he, or possibly they, but I'll say he, looked at it and said, okay, well, we can't do that. We can't make a black and white, you know, uh, noirish 
movie. However, what if, given that this was the 80s, a decade renowned for like neon and bright colors, what mm-hmm. if we made a noir that instead of being really cool and desaturated, or even said we oversaturated it and filled it with really oversaturated neon bright colors uh, and, you know, really just filled the screen with color, could you still make a film that feels like a noir with that sort of visual style and really overload people's senses? And the answer, as we now know, is yes, you can do that and you'll get a really, really great looking movie out as a result of it. Uh, you know, if you're Dave and you have Jonathan Saylor as your cinematographer, which surely helps. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, it was like I say, making a black and white movie was never really on the cards. Um, so I like the, but I like that it wasn't, it was a process that went through thought. And I like that Dave said, okay, we can't do that, but what can we do that will mm-hmm. still make it really visually distinctive? Um, and as I say, I think they absolutely succeeded in that because it looks like no other movie on release today. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, making the colours pop as opposed to desaturating them was was one of the really sort of striking things about this was was the use of colour in the film. And um, and and you're absolutely right. You, I, I, I know that you have to release a film in colour. It's just that it seems to be a bit of a a vogue. I hate to say almost like gimmick at the moment that, um, you, you know, they did it with uh, with Mad Max, but they've also done it with the the recent Logan uh, film as well. Oh, I didn't know that, is, right. Yeah, there's one called Logan Noir now, which is a, uh, they've done it for the home home video release or the, uh, you know, the Blu-ray release, which, um, which, you know, I, I think it's a, it's, it's a good thing if you, if you, if you've got the option, but um uh, yeah, it, it just seems to be a little bit of a, you know, cinema's always looking for that sort of next gimmick, whether it's 3D or, or whatever. It seems to be to re-release films that were colour in black and white uh, hey, at the if, moment for some if they reason. Can get us, if they can get us to buy that disc again, they will, you know. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And, and in terms of the c- casting itself, I mean, what are your thoughts on the sort of because this really has got an impressive cast of, of, of names. Oh, it's amazing, in yeah, this. yeah. What What are your thoughts of those compared to their, like, comic counterparts? Well, the only the only two characters that are really sort of, I, I, I was going to say controversial. Again, that's overstating. It's not really controversial. But the only two characters that stand out, if you like, uh, in that sense are... Uh, James McAvoy playing David Percival because Percival in the book is a middle-aged, overweight, mustachioed, misogynist, old establishment dinosaur. And obviously, you know, he's <laughs> James McAvoy is none of those things. Um, so, you know, physically, he is very, very different. And, you know, he's a lot younger than the character in the books. However, the core of his character is still there. He is a misogynist dirtbag. Uh, you know, he is kind of obstructing her investigation at every turn because he's selfish and he wants to just like he's grown to love his position in Berlin and doesn't want to jeopardize it. Um, so, you know, the core of the character is still there. James just portrays him in a very different way, but in a way that, you know, I really enjoyed. I thought was highly entertaining. Um, and then, of course, the big one that everybody talks about is recasting in the book. The French agent's name is Pierre. Um, Pierre LaSalle, obviously with that name, a man. And in the movie, the French agent is played by Sophia Boutella as Delphine LaSalle. And in the book, I mean, a lot of people are sort of, a lot of people who haven't read the comic, uh, but know that her character had this gender change, assume that they don't sleep together in the book as a result and that the, the love affair is completely made. That's not true. They, you know, um, they do sleep together in the book. Uh, it's a little more perfunctory, shall we say, in the book. Uh, and it is, you know, it's a heterosexual coupling, obviously, between Lorraine and Pierre. Whereas in the movie, it's Lorraine and Delphine, and it's anything but heterosexual. But I, uh, contrary to what some people expected, I was all in in favor of it. When the moment, because <laughs> that was right in, even before Sophia was cast, that was in the very first draft of Kurt's script. Uh, and I gather that he had a discussion with, Charlie's about it before he wrote it um and i was all in all, you know all for it i thought it was a great idea partly 
to get another woman on screen because otherwise it would have been a complete sausage fest. Uh, you know, and that is in the book as well. And I, I will hold my hand up to that, but that's partly because, you know, I was trying to be somewhat realistic and part of the book is about what it's like for Lorraine being a woman, being constantly underestimated as a woman in this man's world of 1980s espionage in Berlin. So, uh, it is a sausage fest in the book. I so I liked the idea of being able to get another woman on screen, uh, you know, in a sort of logical fashion. Uh, and I ha- absolutely have no problems with the character being uh, visibly LGBT as a result. That was, uh, you know, that's not even something that to me is controversial um, because, you know, who's to say that she isn't in the books? My lips are sealed. Um, so that's... Those are the two big differences in character that most people have picked up on. But both of them, like I say, I was really happy with, mainly because they worked in the movie. And I said this before, and I've said this many times, my mantra throughout was, look, I wrote the best graphic novel I could. Now it's up to you guys to make the best movie you can. And if that means changing a few things because it'll work better in the medium of film, then go for it and do it because making a great movie is more important to me than being slavishly faithful to the book. Because like I say, the book's already there. The book's not going anywhere. It still exists. So I'm not precious about that sort of thing. Yeah. We like those changes anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and so did I, as I say. Yeah. <laughs> and in terms of the, um, the actual narrative, um, obviously, you, you know, you, you, I think you've mentioned before you were somewhat um, influenced by the, the usual suspects and, and you, you've got that sort of framing device to the, to the movie. I mean, is, is, was, was that always there or is that something that sort of changed in the, in the edit of the film? Um, oh, no, that was always there because that's how the graphic novel is structured yeah. as well. Yeah, no, the screenplay was written to incorporate that same, uh, yeah, sort of after the event flashback structure um because yeah and that that was like a, as a, as you correctly said i again hold my hand up and say that was entirely influenced by the usual suspects because that is one of my all-time favorite movies and it just seemed to fit for the sort of story we're telling uh because it increases the sense of not knowing who to trust because some of the things that lorraine says are at odds with you know, things that the de- that are coming out in the debrief. Um, so that's all part of the, you know, the mixed up nature of it. And so that the reader doesn't know who to trust, it, not just the characters, but also the reader is like, well, hang on a second. That doesn't, you know, that doesn't match up. And so, yeah, a lot of that, not all of it, but a lot of that made it through to the movie uh, for the same reasons, so that we don't know who we can trust because some of the things that Lorraine says are clearly not what we're being shown on film mm-hmm. no absolutely and uh, and what about i mean you you mentioned you know uh, some of the sort of le carre-esque um influences and whatever on this um but the actual the actual film that that we've ended up with atomic blonde it, it is is quite a um sort of glossy heightened um type of experience and and you you know what what's your what's your thoughts on that? I mean, is is it something? Is it something that uh, you know? You said obviously when you were writing the graphic novel, you were you were sort of aiming for this sort of almost gritty reality of everything. Um, whereas you know the the movie itself and the action in the movie and and obviously the the fact that you've got quite good looking actors in in all of the roles and stuff. It, it, it's a bit more of a sort of um, glossy heightened experience is is that a fair comment or have i missed the point slightly there no i'd say that's fair it's it's kind of hyper real yeah um but that was again that was how they wanted to make the movie charlie's always wanted to make this an action movie uh you know she wanted to have more action than was in the book and so you know that's what um that's what we got and kurt's first screenplay actually had way more action and sort of bigger action than what we wound up with. Uh, he actually kind of, you know, there were, there were some 
really, you know, massive mega budget action set pieces in that first screenplay, in that first draft. And we all looked at it and went, yeah, that's, you know, some of this is probably going a bit too far, actually. Let's wind it in a bit. But that was valuable because then you know, you know, where the line is. Um, but there was always going to be more action. And once you have that sort of movie action in a story, it immediately becomes heightened, you know, because the reality is most of us could take maybe two punches and then we'd fall over. Um, you can't, you know, even the most cursory action movie these days has effectively, you know, unrealistic stroke superhuman uh, fight scenes in it. That's just what we've come to expect from action cinema. Uh, and that's fine. And I, I'm a big fan of uh, many movies that fall under that category anyway, including the John Wick movies. So, yeah. you know, once we knew it was going to have lots of action, we were like, okay, well, then it's not going to be as realistic as the book. And then, of course, when Chad and Dave came on board, even more so, then we were like, oh, okay, right, now we're really going to ramp up this action. Um, but like I say, that was that was part of the progression of making the movie. And again, I am a big believer that you mustn't feel... Uh, because remember, I write adaptations myself. I write graphic novel adaptations of books and screenplays and short stories and what have you. And you mustn't feel hidebound to slavishly follow the source material if it's not working. You know, there are some things where you 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 know your own medium that you're working in. You come to an element and you think that's just not going to work in this new medium into which I'm adapting. And so you have to make a change. And if part of that means, yeah, going away from realism towards this hyper-real action movie style, well, does it suit, serve the movie? If it does, if it makes it a better movie, then go for it. And that's exactly what uh, what we did. And like I say, so I have no qualm or problem with that because they are two different entities. They share the same basic story and structure, but in terms of their feel and tone and the amount of action and what have you, they are two very different things, and I'm fine with that. Mm. And Charlie sells it so well anyway. So, oh, she's uh, so good at it. Helped by the yeah. fact that, by the way, if people haven't, have never seen her in real life, she is an Amazon. Like she is, look at the photos from the Berlin premiere. It's hilarious. She is even in, I mean, okay, she's in heels, fine. But even, you know, bearing that in mind, she is so much taller than all of us. And it cracks me up when I, I have seen people on the internet saying, well, you know, it's so unrealistic that a, a puny woman like Charlize is shown like, you know, <laughs> kicking a couple of guys ass. And I'm like, have you seen her? She could kick yeah. every single one of us down the stairs. Absolutely. I've had the pleasure to meet Charlize before. And yes, she is. She is tall and and massively uh, stunning and striking. Well, and fit. Yeah, she is. She is ripped. She worked out and practiced so hard for this movie in terms of just physical uh, practice. It was incredible. Uh, Anthony, when was the decision made to um, have the there's like bruises and scars on her? Because as we know with most action films, uh, usually they, they will go into a fight and then they come out and they might have a bruise that's sort of gone by the next <laughs> scene. I think, well, I think that's a combination of a number of things. Firstly, it was in the screenplay right from the first draft. Kurt had that opening scene where she gets out of the bath and she's covered in, you know, bruises and she's battered and what have you. So it was already, it was always there in the script. Now, of course, as we know, that doesn't necessarily mean it will make it to film. Mm. However, I think... Action films have been moving in this direction for a while, uh, you know, which helps the general feeling of it's okay to show people, to show the hero getting a bit beaten up and battered, you know, because it is a bit more realistic. And then finally, uh, Chad and Dave and their style of filmmaking and, you know, Dave's uh, focus on, yeah, showing the trials of going through this kind of physical exercise in this kind of physical combat so i think all three of those things came together and then of course finally charlize's willingness to to do that and to not have completely flawless unblemished uncut unbruised skin throughout the entire thing and to show the hell that lorraine has been through you know i know that she was very much in favor of that she liked that idea and she liked that about the character so i don't think there was ever a question that we weren't going to do that it was just a question of to what extent and as it happened we went you know to, to a very large extent um and obviously i'm assuming uh in terms of of, of feedback and success i mean 
you know, it's been out here a couple of weeks now in the UK, but it, it, it's doing pretty well, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. I mean, it's not, you know, I, I don't think, uh, I think the only place we've been number one on opening weekend, funnily enough, was Russia, of all places. Um, so, you know, it's not blowing the barn doors off, but already, I believe, made more money in the US domestically than the first John Wick movie, which is good. Uh, we're on, I think we're just shy of 75 million worldwide at time of recording. Um and it's still yet to open in a couple of big markets like Germany, which I think is this weekend, and Japan, which is next month. So, yeah, you know, it's doing okay. Uh, it's doing pretty much as forecast, basically. It's not exceeding predictions, but it's not underperforming either. Um, and so I I think everybody is happy with its performance. Certainly, there is still talk of, you know, uh, making more. Nothing's official yet. You know, this isn't this isn't a scoop. This isn't breaking news. Um, but there is talk of doing at least one more movie, at least one sequel. And that talk hasn't diminished. So the box office is, yeah, it's doing fine. And more importantly, critically, it's doing pretty well. I think we're at 75, 76% in Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, and... It's, I mean, it's divided critics a little, but the ones who get it really get it. Like you, you read a review and I can tell, you know, now within a few sentences of, of reading a review, whether or not this reviewer gets what we were going for. Uh, and, you know, certainly you can argue about how how much we succeeded in terms of what we were all aiming for. But uh, if if you get it, you know, then this is a movie for you. And there is clearly a certain breed of critic out there who, you know, for whom this movie does not appeal and they don't quite get what we were going for. And that's fine. But the ones who do get it really get it and really get into it. And I really appreciate that. Yeah. So, so we could see atomic blonde to the coldest winter possibly. Yeah. (laughs) Well, not, not the coldest winter because the coldest winter is actually a flashback story about James Ah. McAvoy's character. (laughs) Okay. Okay. My bad. I thought that was a sequel. I thought that was a sequel. Sorry. It's it's, no, it's, it's the second book in the series, but it's a prequel. Ah, okay. It's a prequel. I am. I am, however, working on the third book in the series at the moment, uh, which does bring the focus back to Lorraine, Charlize's character. So, you know, like I say, I have nothing to announce. Nothing's been, you know, we haven't even sort of had talks about that sort of thing. But who knows? Keep your fingers crossed. And has uh, Hollywood yeah, and has Hollywood been knocking on the door? Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, I have been, it's been very good in... Uh, in terms of sort of opening doors for me, if you like. Um, after the premiere in LA, I spent a couple of weeks out there having meetings and what have you. And I'm now in talks with a few people about a few things, and that's really all I'm allowed to say. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. That's all anybody's allowed to say when they're in talks and stuff. Indeed, indeed, yeah. yeah. But yes, it's uh, it's absolutely opened doors for both me and Sam. It's been wonderful. Um, so, yeah, you know, we, we really couldn't have hoped for more and better opportunities really no well, we're really happy for you and mm. it's it's really great to have a uh, a success story um like this you know uh come on our podcast so <laughs> we we really appreciate you coming back to tell us more about this and uh you know hope you stay in touch and 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 you know wish you well with those with those projects moving forward because um you know it really is uh you, you know this journey um you know, from this concept to, to the big screen that you've got here is, is the sort of thing that uh, myself, Simon, and many, many of our peers and colleagues, you know, only dream of. So um, well done indeed. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. So, uh, Anthony, where can people find out about your work and, of course, your uh, podcast? Uh, well, you can find me by uh, because my name is slightly unusually spelled you can basically find me just by typing me into google as long as you spell it correctly uh because i am uh, able to snatch up domain names and social media uh accounts <laughs> with my real name <laughs> so my name is anthony johnston and that's spelt a n t o n y j o h n s t o n so there's no h in anthony and there is a t in johnston a n t o n y J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N. And if you search for that, or if you just put that into Google, sorry, into Twitter, into Facebook, or just as a .com, you will find me in my websites and my social media accounts. 
I don't know how anyone can make that mistake, Anthony, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I've said this before. If I, if I have one regret in my career, it's that when I was starting, I didn't choose a, uh, a pseudonym, a nom de plume, that Americans could spell more easily without misspelling it all the time. Honestly, it's been a millstone around my neck. <laughs> uh, join the club. I, people always misspell my surname. I'm, gonna, I'm sure, yeah. 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 And you can you can imagine the nightmares I have. So yeah. Mm. Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, listen, we we I know that uh, you know time is precious, and you agreed at the beginning you could probably give us about forty five minutes. So we re- really appreciate you uh, you sparing the time to have a have a chat with us about this. I mean, we we enjoyed the film. We're really excited about it, and. Um, you know, really excited to hear more about what you're doing and stuff. So, um, you know, please do indeed stay in touch. And, uh, you know, we, we hope to have you on again when we're, when we're chatting about another subject. Um, to, to actually, talking of which, you mentioned that you genre hop quite a bit. Um, without putting you too much on the spot, can I ask, what what is your favourite genre, would you say? Oh, that's like asking me who's my child i mean that's yeah uh, it's it's yeah i've probably now ironically done more work in the spy genre than any other um because obviously there's the two coldest books uh, i do another series a more light-hearted sort of james bond like series called codename babushka uh, at image comics and i have just written a spy novel hopefully the first in a series so ironically given that you know, it's I sort of came to it a bit late. Uh, that's now probably my most written genre. But uh, I, yeah, like I say, I've also written fantasy, sci-fi, crime, uh, rom-coms, westerns, horror. I wrote loads of horror when I was starting out. For you know, for a while, I was known as the horror guy, and that's partly why I genre hopped because I didn't want to be known as a particular, you know, the horror guy or the sci-fi guy or the fantasy guy. Uh, that's never been uh never been something i desired so i deliberately hopped around a bit to make sure that people realized i wasn't just somebody who wrote one particular genre so i i can't honestly say i have a favorite um but yeah as i say ironically i am now probably going to be known as a, as an espionage writer uh, forevermore <laughs> uh, nothing wrong with that i mean you're you're like us guys you like loads of different stuff and yeah that's, that's exactly yeah like. yeah <laughs> So, um, sort of wrapping up the uh, the episode. So, uh, Keith, where can we find your work? Okay, if you uh, if you go to YouTube and put in British Isles, and that's spelled E Y L E S, as in my last name, uh, you can see some short films on there that I've written, produced, and directed. And for any other credits, just put my name into IMDb. And as always, you can find my work at independentrunnings.com. You can listen to this podcast on that site, as well as iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and all good podcast providers. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. And if you're on iTunes or Stitcher, please leave us a review and a rating. It all helps. So that just leaves me to uh, thank our guest, Anthony Johnson, for coming on. Uh, Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And uh, hope that you, uh, you the listener, join us again for the next episode of Movie Heaven, Movie Hell.
Excellent.